Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church Franklin. Good to see you this morning. Uh, I'm a new face, I think, to some of you at least, and so let me address that mystery for just a moment here. Some of you are thinking, man, Fellowship Bible Church in the summer is a lot like a box of chocolates. You, you never know who you're gonna get. So uh, to address uh, that situation, my name's Mike. Uh, I'm an elder here at Fellowship Bible Church. I'm normally an attendee over at the Brentwood campus on Sunday mornings. Um, and my wife and I have been coming to fellowship since uh, August of 2002. So we're 21 years here, and it is a joy to be with you this morning. How fun to be at the Franklin campus on the first ever 8 o'clock service at this campus. So that's pretty cool. Um, let me uh, segue, if I could. I want to share a little bit about how I normally prepare for a Sunday morning message. Uh, I'm usually up here like once or twice a year. Uh, it's good to give the, uh, the main teaching pastors, Rob and Lloyd, a bit of a break from time to time. So I, I enjoy the opportunity to teach if, if for another, no other reason than it gives them a break. And the normal way that I prepare for a Sunday morning looks something like this. I will usually email Rob or Lloyd and say, hey, can you please send me the commentaries for the passage of text that you've asked me to teach? Uh, in this case, I'm doing John 13, chapters one through 20 this morning, 20 verses. Normally when I send that email, one of them will get back to me and I'll get a Word document that's 15 or 17 pages long uh, that'll help me to kind of prepare and organize my thoughts so I'm able to preach. I did that exact same ritual this time. And I sent it to Rob Sweet and said, hey, I've got these 20 verses. Can you help me prepare? Please send me some commentaries from the smart guys. Uh, into my inbox a couple days later is a Word document that's 64 pages long. <laughs> and Rob's response says this, here you go, Mike. You've got an incredibly rich and dense text for that Sunday morning. Good luck. <laughs> so let's pray. <laughs> Lord, I'm looking for a little more than luck this morning. I'm looking for you. Uh, and Lord, though I have prepared and I have sought your wisdom uh, and also sought the knowledge of the people who are biblical commentators, who are skilled in the management of your word, Lord, I'm here to be your mouthpiece this morning. So I pray that you don't fill this congregation with Mike. I pray that you fill it with you. We're here this morning to be changed by you through your word, through your example, and I'm merely here to be your mouthpiece. So Lord, more than two are gathered, we trust you at the promise that you are here among us and I ask that we would be not just convicted, but changed because of our time together. In your name we pray, amen. Well, let's dive in because there's a lot, as I could have guessed from Rob Sweet's email to me. Um, so you wouldn't guess this if you're uh, simply methodically working through the Gospel of John, either in your Bible or in this uh, fun little purple book that Fellowship has provided you. But what you realize when you read the commentators is that when you move from chapter 12 and you turn the page to chapter 13, we've really shifted gears in the Gospel of John. And again, I wouldn't have known that if I'm just reading my Bible chronologically. Here's what you need to know about chapters 1 through 12 in the Gospel of John. Commentators collectively call the first 12 chapters of the book the book of signs. The book of signs, okay? This is Jesus' public ministry in Israel. It is very outward focused for the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John. It's very broad focused. This is Jesus going out into Israel to provide miraculous signs to men and women to give evidence as to his identity. He's trying to show people why they should believe in him, okay? This first 12 chapters covers a timeline of roughly three years. 
12 chapters, three years. You can tell by that fact alone that John is merely hitting the highlights. In fact, if you were to fast forward to the Gospel of John and go to the very, very last verse in the Gospel, John even says himself, I've just scratched the surface in my writings of the things that this guy said and did. In fact, if everything were written down, the whole world could not contain all the books. We've got 12 chapters for three years in the Gospel of John in the uh, first 12 chapters. We switch today to John 13, and so we've switched gears. Uh, John 13 begins what they call the book of glory, the book of glory. This is no longer Jesus' outward ministry where he's broad focused. You're gonna see in the book of glory that Jesus is now, it's his private ministry. It's inward focused. It's very narrow. Jesus is not reaching out into the community to look for people who will believe in him. Jesus is on the countdown and he is now investing in those who are closest to him, his followers and his disciples. And this part blew me away when I read this. First 12 chapters, three years. Next seven chapters, 24 hours in the life of Jesus Christ. Isn't that crazy? He is slowing down. John is slowing down because he doesn't want us to miss a thing in this portion of the life of Jesus Christ. Let's jump into it. The prologue. John 13, verse one says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, it says, he rose from supper. All right, a couple of observations in the prologue. The first is this, John offers us a timestamp of sorts that says that it is just before the feast of Passover. So translation, it's not Passover yet. This is the evening meal roughly the day before Passover begins. Passover will commence tomorrow night at sundown. This is the dinner prior to that, okay? Now, just as an aside, if you've been counting, this is the third Passover that John records. The third Passover that John records. The first one was in John chapter 2, verse 13. The second one was John chapter 6, verse 4. The third one is here. And for those of you who love Bible trivia, this is why we believe Jesus had a roughly three-year ministry. We can count three of the festivals that only occur annually, and this is why, again, Jesus' ministry was considered to be a roughly three-year duration. Okay, what is Passover? Well, the Jews have celebrated the Passover ever since the time of the Exodus. And you might remember the story from the book of Exodus that God sent a series of plagues to Egypt. And God sent these plagues upon Egypt to convince Pharaoh to release the Hebrew slaves. And in the series of plagues, the very last one was, that was sent was a plague that the firstborn child in every household would die. This plague was gonna be the worst and the final plague that would be sent to Egypt. And the only way that this plague could be averted is if a spotless lamb was slain and the lamb's blood was painted on the doorposts and on the lintel of the household. And if the blood of the lamb was applied to your house, 
then the angel of death would pass over your house, hence the name, and your firstborn would be spared. Now, on this very first Passover, the lambs were slaughtered in the afternoon and the blood had to be applied to the doorpost before sundown. Every year since that very first Passover in Israel, Passover lambs would be slain in the afternoons prior to sundown. Do you realize, church, in our text, that tomorrow afternoon in Israel, in this timeline, Jesus is gonna go to the cross and he himself will be nailed to the cross at the same time that the Passover lambs would be slaughtered. In fact, when you look at the symbolism of where the nails would be in the crown of thorns, you can almost see that there's an allusion to Christ way back in Egypt thousands of years ago, almost an anticipation of the, of the final lamb that would be slain uh, to allow us to be saved. Okay, observation number two. Besides that, we have a reference to what John calls the hour. Lloyd mentioned this briefly last week in the text that the hour had come. You need to realize, I think I counted six times in the Gospel of John where Jesus in his ministry is telling people his hour had not come. His hour had not come. And we see a change in tone in this text. Jesus knowing that his hour had come. What is the hour? Every time in the Gospel of John that we see a reference to the hour, you need to realize it's referring to the cross. It's referring to the cross. There is one reason for which Christ comes, and that is to die. The hour is Calvary. Jesus is to come and die on a cross for the sins of man, for the justice of God, and then he will rise to victory. The hour for that time had come. We are on the countdown to the cross. Third observation in this prologue is this. I just call this love and majesty. I love how beautiful this is. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In verse three, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, it says he rose from supper. There's a sense and a description of who Jesus is, where he's come from, where he's going. It actually echoes of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 14 verses later, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. This is like a bookend to, or a, uh, an intro to the second half of the Gospel of John, the way that John 1.1, of course, introduces the whole Gospel. I think it's just beautiful. Quick observation here for the expository police in the room. Some of us love expository preaching because you gotta go verse by verse by verse through the Bible. Some of you notice that I just jumped over verse two. Don't get anxious. I'm coming back to that. There's actually three different sections in our text this morning that is a reference to Judas Iscariot, and I'm actually gonna bundle them all together. Let's keep going. This next section, I'm just gonna call foot washing. Let's take a look at it. Jesus, it says, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. At a 30,000 foot view, see if you can get a glimpse of what this is telling us. Let me, let, me, let me read this to you in a slightly different way at a high level. A divine being, 
lays aside his robe. He takes upon himself the towel of a servant and he removes the filth of men. When done, he then takes off the towel, now covered in filth, puts back on his divine robe and he resumes his place. What does that sound like? That's the gospel. That's an illusion. That's, an, that's a, a snapshot of the gospel at a high level. But let's look at this now more at a ground level. Let's talk about the what and the why of foot washing. Why did, why did the people in Israel do this? Well, foot washing was a courtesy that was performed upon entry into Jewish households at this time. Keep in mind, walking is your only mode of transportation at this time, and you're not sporting Nikes or enclosed shoes, you've got sandals on your feet. The roads are made of dirt, and they are shared by people and by animals. And so when you walk any distance, not only do you have dust and dirt and mud that comes up over the side of your sandals onto your feet, but you get some animal and human waste products as well. And let's just say that you don't wanna track all that yuck into your home. And so how do you prevent that? Well, your feet are generally washed as a courtesy upon entry into a Jewish household. Now, who does this? Well, foot washing in the ancient world, it was a necessary task, but it was very menial and it was very degrading. In fact, the, the doing of this, it fell to the lowliest of the low. Okay, if there's like an organizational chart or a hierarchy of slaves in a household, it's the lowest ranking slave that does this. In fact, in one of the commentaries that I read that Rob provided me, I learned that there are certain regions in Israel where Jewish slaves were actually exempted from this task and only Gentile slaves could do it. You might say, well, why would that be? It's because of the close contact, the close proximity that the Jew would get their hands into, coming into close contact with that which was deemed ceremonially unclean by Levitical law. This was a disgusting and lowly task, and even at times, Jewish slaves were prevented from doing it. But check out your text. It says, Jesus rose from supper, grabbed a towel, and started washing his disciples' feet. Why did he rise from supper? Clearly, feet were not washed upon entry into the upper room. The text doesn't say why. Maybe there were no servants that were at this household that the, Jesus and his disciples are borrowing for the upper room dinner. Maybe there were no servants or slaves available. Maybe no one who was assembled thought it was their job to do this. Uh, either way, Jesus rose from supper and he grabbed a towel and basin and he began to wash his people's, his disciples' feet. You need to realize how strange this would have been. This would have been jarring. This was so socially inappropriate, so unexpected that the disciples would literally not have known how to react or what to do in this moment. In fact, one of the commentators, uh, D.A. Carson says this. He says, what makes the fourth gospel's account so extraordinary is that there is no parallel in extant ancient literature of a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. Jesus' act, therefore, represents an assault on the usual notions of social hierarchy, a subversion of the normal categories of honor and shame. It is not just an honored teacher who is performing a shameful act, uh, but it is a divine figure with sovereignty over the cosmos who has taken on the role of a slave.
Guys, Jesus is serving his disciples by assuming the posture of a slave. And most of the disciples would have sat in stunned silence and disbelief. That is, until he got to Peter. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing to you now, you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. I love this. You guys ever wonder what the New Testament would be like without Peter? Do you ever think about that? The guy adds so much entertainment value to the text. So much color, so much personality, so much flair, right? He's, he's got intensity, but sometimes he has a hard time connecting the dots. It's, I just love what he adds to the New Testament, uh, New Testament narrative. What do we know to be true about Peter? The guy is devoted to Jesus. He loves Jesus and he is devoted to him. And I would, I would argue in this morning's text that the depth of his devotion is actually reflected in the strength of his objection. Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Peter is actually the only one who's calling attention to or is recognizing the social dishonor that's present in this moment, right? Peter is saying, Jesus, if anyone's washing feet this morning, it's not you. Right, because he realized that, man, Jesus, you're here. You're the only one who shouldn't be washing feet this morning. But then Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, right? He's, he's acknowledging, I'm teaching you at a level right now that you don't understand. So Peter's response then, well then, uh, okay, can I get my hands and my head washed? Can I get like the full spa treatment if you're gonna wash me then, right? And that's when it gets interesting in the text, okay? I love some of the word choice in the, I think it's in verse eight that we see this. Some of the nuance in the word selection is very instructive in this exchange. Check out verse eight. It says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The question is no longer one simply of foot washing, but of who does the foot washing? Who is the one who is going to wash you? It's interesting that Jesus is saying he is the only one who is able to make us clean. Now, a moment ago, we could have agreed anyone could have grabbed the towel and basin and washed the feet. So we are clearly speaking beyond the exercise of foot washing right now. Jesus is communicating a deeper truth on a more profound level. I think that's why in verse seven, he says, you're not gonna understand this, but soon you'll understand. Jesus is clearly saying he is the only one who can make them clean. Now, why is that? What's the problem that Jesus is speaking about? Is the problem that uh, they've got some dust and some dirt and some yuck on their feet that he doesn't want tracked into the house of the upper room because we don't wanna disappoint our host? No, I don't think that's what he's saying here at all, actually. No, I don't think the problem is that our feet have become dirty and they need to be cleaned. I believe Jesus is speaking about a deeper truth, and that's that the inside of us has become filthy that we are unclean on the inside, we are spiritually unclean, and we need to be washed in order for us to be able to be in right standing with a holy God. Now, how is this accomplished? If you're a note taker, why don't you write two things down in the margins? 
The first thing we need to do is we need to acknowledge our need. We need to acknowledge our need. Listen, when a person's willing to admit their sin, you can work with them. But if they're not willing to admit and acknowledge their sin, they're stuck. The problem in this, I see this in my life. I see this in the life of my family and my loved ones. We see this throughout the Bible. Most of us don't like to admit that we're dirty. Most of us don't like to admit our faults, our wrongs, our wrongdoings. Let me give you an example. Uh, Moses, coming down from Mount Sinai, he's holding the Ten Commandments. He's going down to the encampment and he sees Aaron, his brother, and there's a gold calf in front of Aaron. Aaron, did you make this gold calf? Aaron's response, um, well, I threw gold in the fire and out came this calf. Interesting. I'm sure that's exactly how that went down. Adam, did you eat from the fruit from the tree that I forbade? Um, well, the woman that you gave me, she took the fruit and then gave me some. There was no prayer request. I'm sure that's exactly how it went down. See, we don't like to acknowledge that we're dirty. We don't like to admit our wrongs. Some of us struggle with that, but the Bible is super clear. In order for us to be cleansed, you're gonna have to do it. You're gonna have to acknowledge your need. In fact, 1 John 1, 9 says it this way, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The cleansing is predicated upon the confession. We need to acknowledge our need. That's step one. Step number two, note takers, is to accept the deed. We need to acknowledge the, the need and then we need to accept the deed. But some people struggle to accept the deed just as Peter did initially. Jesus, you are here and I am here. I am not worthy to be washed by you. I am not worthy to be cleansed by you. And whether it be a, a sense of pride or a deeply held sense of guilt, or just that you don't believe you deserve to be cleansed. Some of us are hesitant to receive the gift of a washing, of a cleansing that Jesus is offering to us. My friends, this is a free gift. Jesus is offering it to us, but even a free gift needs to be not only offered, but accepted in order for it to be yours. We need to be willing to let Jesus wash us. Acknowledge the need, accept the deed, and then the last part I'll say about this section is verse 10. Some people get tripped up on this, right? Uh, Peter says to, uh, or Jesus says to Peter, sorry, Peter to Jesus, Lord, please don't wash just my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus' response to him, I don't have to. Jesus is saying, you're already clean. In other words, Peter, you have repented and believed. You are clean. You have been saved. There's no need to be saved again and again, okay? That's what he's saying in the text. Let's keep going, because I got a lot more ground to cover still. Verse 12, let's look at this practically speaking, okay? Verse 12 says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So as we look at this text, one of the things I wanted to do as preparation for this is, all right, here's John's version of the upper room discourse. What do the other gospel authors have to say about this upper room gathering? And it's interesting for me, when I get to Luke, Luke's version of this upper room discourse, what's interesting to me is that you discover that in Luke's account of what happened here, you discover that an argument broke out among the disciples. The argument came about because they were wrestling over or competing over who would be the greatest when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And Jesus stops the debate and he asks his disciples, he says, hey, who's greater? Is it the one who sits at the table or is it the one who serves at the table? And Jesus is actually asking a really profound question. He is saying, what is greatness? What is greatness? And it's a question I think all of us should be wrestling with and asking ourselves this morning. What is greatness to you? Is it power? Is greatness the strength of your connections? Is it your wealth? Is it the value of your home? Is it the number of your homes? Is it the size of your 401k? Is greatness in your eyes measured by the number of people who serve you? Or is it measured by the number of people that you serve? What's totally interesting to me in the text this morning is that Luke 22 doesn't mention the foot washing and John 13 doesn't mention the argument. But when you put the two of these together, you can see that chronologically, they would have happened in the upper room at exactly the same time. And it becomes crystal clear to me why Jesus offers this profound example to his disciples at the very time in his ministry that he did. You guys wanna know greatness? You wanna talk about greatness? Let me show you greatness in the kingdom. It looks like this. He's saying, guys, you're thinking of greatness the way the world does, the way the world does. And yet we're standing on the very precipice. We're standing on the hinge point of the greatest reversal of the idea of greatness that the world will ever see. Tomorrow afternoon, Jesus is going to save the world by becoming weak. Jesus uses the foolish things to confound the wise. The way to save your life is to lose it. The way to happiness is to seek the happiness of others. Church, the world is gonna fill your mind with ideas of greatness that are not lining up with the way that Jesus teaches and views and wants us to think about greatness. We need to fill our minds with more Jesus. So let's make this practical this morning, shall we? What does foot washing look like in the modern context? Well, in the absence of dirt roads and the presence of Nikes and covered footwear and you know, paved roads to get to church here, do we still have to do foot washing today? Is it still something we should be considering? Well, I would argue that even though the utilitarian aspect of this is somewhat lost uh, because of our modes of transportation and quality of our footwear, I think the symbolism of this is still very rich. Uh, on one of my many trips to South Sudan, I've been to go visit James Bach and our church in Vietnam, South Sudan, about 13 times. On one of my trips there, Michelle York, the trip leader, had said, hey, I got a cool idea. Let's wash the feet of the, of the local church leaders here in Vietnam. And I thought to myself, ooh. 
because these guys are getting around on their feet. And I walk on these roads and I see what's on these roads. And at first my enthusiasm wasn't real high, but I was willing to go along with it because, hey, I'm here to surf. And you can't tell it from this picture, but I'm washing the feet of a plus or minus 80 year old man named William Duwop. William is a former spearmaster. That means he's a former witch doctor who would appeal to the ancestors and tribal spirits on behalf of the people that had needs. He abandoned being a spearmaster and became a Christian and was an incredible force for good for the church in Vietnam. It was so awesome in evangelistic settings because William would openly mock other spearmasters and remind them that they actually had no power at all. It was such a joy and such a privilege to watch the very, very well-traveled feet of this man. You can't see it because the camera's facing the other way, but I had tears pouring down my face as I got to serve and care for the, the feet of this man who was such an incredible force for good in this community. I am so grateful for this experience, so grateful for this experience. And I love, if I can share plainly, how my time in Vietnam and helping to serve the needs of our global partners, how that has changed me as a person. I am so different today because someone invited me to step into the needs of people on the other side of the globe and my life is so much richer now because of this. But let's look at a modern context of this. What does foot washing look like today in Middle Tennessee, in Williamson County? What might a modern context of this look like for you? Can you still wash people's feet? Absolutely. But what does this look like if we were to modernize this and contextualize this? Well, the question I would ask is, where are the needs around you? Where are the needs around you that you have perhaps been hesitant to step into? It might be because the work is too lowly or too thankless. Uh, there might be a whole bunch of reasons, but hey, I, I, I'm just too busy. That's, that's a favorite one of mine. I'm just too busy, which really, if you translate that, it just means I've got other things that I view as being a much more high priority than that. What are the needs around you that you're aware of that you have chosen to not step into? It could be needs right in your own house. It could be needs in your place of work. It could be needs in your community. It could be needs in your church. Paige spoke about some needs this morning that we still have to fulfill here so that our kids can hear the gospel on Sunday morning. I wanna make sure you heard that. There are still needs in this building that have yet to be fulfilled so that our kids can hear the gospel on Sunday morning. My friends, we all have a part to play in this, all of us. If you're not serving and helping to meet the needs of others, even the lowly needs for which you are vastly overqualified for, I need you to ask yourself a question. Why am I not doing that? What's the reason? You see, all of us need to be prepared to step into seemingly insignificant um, roles of service without praise, without fanfare, arguably without recognition. Why? Because that's what Jesus is asking us to do and that's what he did. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He said, servanthood begins where gratitude and applause ends. You're not doing this for recognition. You're not doing this for gratitude. You're doing this because you are choosing to serve the needs of others. You know what's cool in this? When you do it, what happens to you? It says you're blessed. You are blessed when you step into this. 
Now please note, it doesn't say you are blessed when you acknowledge the need. It's not a blessing when you intellectually agree that the need should be met. The blessing comes when you choose to step into it and make a difference yourself. No action, no blessing. We need to step into the need ourselves that we have identified. All right, one last comment, one last observation in the text and then we'll wind down. Some of you this morning might be envisioning a need that you're aware of that you don't want to step into. Uh, you might say to, to yourself, man, if I stepped into that need, if I helped to meet that specific situation, I would be coming into contact with someone whose feet I would never wash. Either because a person or an organization has wronged you or has offended you or has somehow violated you and your trust in one way or another. I don't know what your story is, but some of you this morning might be able to see a need that you're aware of that's like, uh-uh, that one's off limits. I would gladly restock the shelves at the food pantry. I would gladly serve food at the rescue mission, but I'm not meeting that need because of what that person did. Well, I want you to see something in our text this morning. There are three places in our text in John 13 this morning that reference Judas Iscariot. Jesus knows who's about to betray him. In fact, within a matter of hours of this dinner, Judas will be the reason why Jesus is arrested and ultimately tomorrow afternoon will be killed. But you know what's interesting in our text? There's nothing in the foot washing account that says that when Jesus got to Judas, he stopped and said, uh-uh, not you. It says he washes everyone's feet. Everyone's feet, including the feet of Judas. And I wanna ask you, if Jesus can wash the feet of the man who was about to get him killed, then what's your reason for not stepping into the needs of someone with whom you might be estranged or someone who has wronged you? You see, if we're only seeking to take care of the needs of those with whom uh, people we are loyal to or are loyal to us, we're only looking to take care of the needs of others who are kind to us, we are not even coming close to the example that Jesus has set for us in our text this morning. You need to realize that all of the disciples in one way or another are gonna turn on Jesus. We know Judas will betray him. We know Peter will deny him. And when Jesus goes to the cross, all of them scatter, except for one, in fear for their own lives. Everyone is gonna leave Jesus and disappoint him. But it says in our text this morning that he loves them and he serves them without exception. Because that's how it is with Jesus Christ. Now I'm gonna invite the worship band to go ahead and come up this morning as we're gonna wrap up our time together today. But I need you to know something this morning, church. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he puts his love on you and there's nothing that can dislodge it. Our text this morning says, having loved them, he loved them to the end. It doesn't say he loved them because they earned it. It doesn't say he loved them because they were perfect. Nope. Church, the whole relationship with Jesus isn't because we were lovable, because we were perfect, none of that. It's because he is. It's not a function of our holiness, it's a function of his. And friends, you need to realize that it's because Jesus loved us unconditionally, served us with his life, that we should do likewise to our fellow man. 
And the dichotomy in all of this is that when we assume the role of a servant, when we seek ways to practically meet the needs of the people around us, the lowliest among us, even those who have offended us, what is super clear in the text this morning is that when we choose to do this, that we will be blessed. We will be blessed for doing so. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your profound example of service. Lord, not only did you love us by coming down from your heavenly place and putting on humanity, putting on flesh, but when you did that, Lord, you didn't just come to teach us, you served us, metaphorically washing our feet, but also, Lord, at the cross by choosing to take away our filth and nailing it to the cross on our behalf. Lord, we get to have a right standing in front of a holy God because you chose the path of a servant, because you took on a burden and you removed us, the filth from us when we were unable to do so. Lord, in our text this morning, we see a profound example of how we are to live amongst each other, how we are to serve and care for the needs of those around us. And Jesus, I just pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Would you convict us of how we are to apply this text in our life? that we might not just leave here changed, but that we'd have the influence of being the hands and feet of Jesus in our communities. Help us to demonstrate your love for us by the way that we love and serve those around us. In your name.